Before we start today's interview, please allow me a word or two about our podcast. Even as Myanmar plunges into a civil war because of the military's bloody coup, the international community and media organizations have all but turned their backs on the country and its people. But this humble platform is committed to staying the course. We conduct nuanced, long-form interviews with a variety of guests connected to Myanmar so our listeners can better understand the ongoing crisis. Thank you for choosing to spend the next couple of hours with us today. today on this episode of Inside Myanmar podcast with Patrick Wynn, who is the author of the book Hello Shadowlands and has been living, investigating, reporting, writing on Southeast Asia and Myanmar for some time. He's going to talk with us about the book as well as recent post-coup developments. So Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, chat with us. Joe, thanks so much for having me on. Great. So you start off your book by noting that Southeast Asia is, quote, a haven for the compulsively curious, end quote. Uh, This resonated so much uh, to readers, including the former ambassador to Myanmar, U.S. Ambassador Scott Marcial, that he began his own book, Imperfect Partners, by quoting this same line to describe his own 35 years in the region. So it's certainly a line that resonates with a lot of people reading it. It resonated with me as well. But I want to, because you're the creator of this line, I want to ask you the same question I asked Scott Marcial when I had him on here, and that's to unpack the meaning of this phrase. For me, at least, I came to Southeast Asia in 2008, moving to Bangkok. Uh, I was immediately enthralled. I'm just a very naturally curious person. Curiosity is the the trait in others that I find the most attractive and, and appealing. Um, I can, Look, I came into Bangkok. Uh, I'm sure if you grow up in Bangkok and, and mm-hmm. have always experienced that as your natural environment, it's maybe not that special, but for me, I was immediately enthralled. And once I, uh, first I set my sights on understanding Thailand, learning the language. And from there, I discovered Thailand's neighbor, Myanmar, and realized, oh, wait, this is actually an even more fascinating place. Uh, Myanmar, <laughs> I hope people take this the right way. I don't really look at Myanmar as a single country. I look at mm-hmm. it as a collection of nations. Every Burmese kid growing up learns uh, about the, the, the ethnic races in Myanmar, Bamarchen, Kachin, Karin, Shan, Karini, Rakhine. Who did I live out, leave out? Mon. <laughs> okay. So um, this 
the country of Myanmar is even more interesting because it's really a collection of of nations of people that have groups that have many times fought for their own independence to preserve their own way of life. Um, it has even more depth and richness, I think, than I would say than any other Southeast Asian country, and for my money, any other country in the world. But of course, I'm limited by mm-hmm. my own experiences. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Myanmar, I would apply that same same phrase. It is absolutely heaven for the curious. And, and I would apply that, you know, you, you could ask that same question of people who are born and raised in Myanmar. They're, they're born and raised in a fascinating country. And I've, mm-hmm. I've found that certain people born in certain parts of Myanmar might not be all that familiar with what's happening, say, in the mountains over here or the coast over here. So it just has a lot of complexity, which I consider to be uh, an attribute. Yeah, that's that's really true. And I and I think on top of the complexity, you have the closed nature of the country where there's many fields where uh, many fields of study and of academia where when you're reading books and people trying to study and understand this, sometimes they're referencing like 100 year old and 150 year old like British colonial texts because nothing has been done with whatever this area of study is since. Uh, And so it's it's really it's a, a a complex place compounded by somewhat of a black hole and a large wall. Yeah, I make no special claim to have figured out Myanmar. Um, <laughs> that's not even my my goal. I'm not trying to figure anything out. I just consider myself to be uh, very fortunate that I've managed to meet people in Myanmar and been able to convey their stories in English. And that's pretty much all that I'm doing. Um, I, I've just been extremely lucky to get the access that I've gotten um, and I've met some of my very favorite people on earth, uh, in the country. Mm. Mm. So in your work as well, in general, you focus quite a bit on illicit activities, organized crime, and in the introduction to your book, Hello Shadowlands, you reference how you're not trying to seek out deranged personalities or gritty true crime tales, but you're actually looking for people that are, are well-meaning, logic-driven individuals who are choosing to live outside the law, sometimes based on the context of the societies they find themselves in. Could you explain more of the distinction and elaborate on what specifically fascinates you about this aspect of organized crime and the people who live in that world? Sure. Yeah, that's true. I don't... Um... I try really hard not to ever view the world as uh, through the lens of uh, good and evil. And that really informs my reporting. If there's any sort of creed that I observe when reporting, it's that. So I cover the, the narcotics trade centered in Myanmar the way other reporters you know, for Bloomberg or Wall Street Journal might cover oil or might cover natural gas or might cover um, other aspects of the economy. It's it's a Mm -hmm. commodity. Um, However, it's one of the very few commodities that a morality message is affixed to. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm 42 years old. I grew up in the US. I grew up uh, during Ronald Reagan and the war on drugs. I'm from the just say no generation. Mm -hmm. It was it was crammed down our throats that to use drugs was evil. The people that sell drugs are evil. And right. those that uh, fight them are fighting on behalf of justice. And it's all very corny. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'm, Myanmar happens to be the heartland for narcotics production in, in 
Asia, I was about to say Southeast Asia, but mm -hmm. the, the narcotics trade in Myanmar really, the, the numbers on narcotic sales are never totally certain, but it's very possible you can make a very strong case that it has eclipsed the narcotics trade in North America, which would be centered in Mexico. Um, this is just a giant, giant mm. industry that shapes people's lives. It shapes how they make money. Even if you're not involved in the narcotics trade, it mm -hmm. could be somebody in your uh, in your district or your state in Myanmar that um, has more power, say, than the local politicians referring to the pre-coup days. So to ignore it or to look mm -hmm. at it through this good versus evil lens like um, Harry Potter fighting Voldemort. This is just a very childish and naive mm -hmm. way to look at it. There are people of all up and down the morality scale that yeah. are involved in this. People that uh, get into it and take very good care of their families and go out of their way not to hurt people. And of course, in, in any corporate environment, and the, the, the money is so big that it, it is on a level of Fortune 500 companies. In any corporate environment, you have people that are absolute sharks that are absolutely ruthless that will leave you know, bodies in their path if it helps them make more money. And yeah, just to, it, it's just too huge to ignore. And just so people understand the figures that I'm talking about, it's estimated that just the meth trade alone, centered in Myanmar, but but uh, distributed all throughout Southeast Asia and beyond, is valued at sixty billion dollars and mm. now that's on par with the legal gdp the legal economy of the country of myanmar that's mm -hmm. astounding and i yeah. am perennially i'm just constantly shocked that it doesn't get more attention i'm not even saying i'm the best person to cover it i might not yeah. be <laughs> but i'm, I'm going to do my best yeah, that's that's fascinating. And then when you throw in illicit jade, it's a whole other story of the illegal economy. But yeah. you know, it also when you're when you're breaking down these divergences of personalities and characters, it reminds me of the chapter that I think it was. I'm I'm trying to recall which book this was from. So hopefully I cite it right. I believe it was from Jane Ferguson's book on Shanland, and she's now she's analyzing Kunsa and basically breaking down this um, Kunsa. Of course, for for those who don't know, was was a quite a famous uh, rebel leader and warlord and drug runner and many other things you could put after his name. But the basic divide in trying to understand him was, did he truly care about Sean independence and, and heritage and, and people, or was he just in it for himself? And her analysis at the end of the chapter is, why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't both of these things be true in a complicated figure? And, uh, and I think also, you know, over the years, uh, the, following up on what you said about the attention this is getting and the size and the importance of it, there certainly has been quite a bit of mystique about the drug barons in regions like Mexico and Colombia. I'm not just talking about reporting, but also just in kind of the pop culture lore, the Netflix television shows or the documentaries or or whatever. There's um, uh, both in terms of what's happening now in these regions, as well as historically in the last several decades. There's quite a bit of media coverage, as well as just the, the pop culture uh, kind of icons of um, of of what these figures represent. And when you compare that to Myanmar, there's been extremely little both in the past as well as now. I guess this kind of fits in somewhat to no matter what you're looking at, Myanmar is just 
is not and has never been covered to the extent that other places. It's always been kind of a back burner. But looking at this topic specifically of the drug trades, the drug barons, the personalities, the not just the regional significance, but the global significance, in your opinion, why do you think there is this discrepancy in media attention? And do you think that there are specific, specific factors or dynamics that would contribute to Myanmar's drug trade receiving relatively less press coverage? Yeah, so we have to divide it into two different eras. If you ask me right now, why is the Myanmar-centered narcotics trade getting less attention? Mm, that's because the narcotics that are being produced in Myanmar are not making their way to the United States. It's just true. Um, primarily, the, the engine of the narcotics trade in, in Southeast Asia is methamphetamine, and just very quickly, uh, that's sold in two different forms. One is crystal meth, the type of stuff you would have seen on Breaking Bad. You put it in a little glass bowl and smoke it, or you can snort it if you want to lacerate your nostrils. Um, and then there's a pink pill called uh, Yaba. And in Myanmar, they call it Yama, which is actually mm -hmm. a loan word from Thai. It means horse pills. Mm. We can go into the etymology of that later, but basically it's a little pink pill that is uh, methamphetamine mixed with caffeine and some other binding agents to make it into a pill. You can swallow it, you can smoke it, and often it smells like vanilla. So those are the two products, and that's what's being sold now. Those two, pro I mean, these are some of the this is some of the best selling criminal products in the world, and they just don't happen to make it to the United States because, in this day and age, um, there's enough wealth in Asia to support its own narcotics market. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't always the case. Back, you referenced Khun Sa back in his day, um, back in the day of the uh, previous, for lack of a better word, drug cartel that was dominant in the region and that was also backed by the CIA. We can go into that if you want to. Sure. Back in those days, um, you had to ship your product elsewhere if you wanted to make any money because most people in Southeast Asia did not have enough disposable income to sustain drug addiction. And I, didn't, I, I don't mean that there were no, no people that were hooked on drugs. That would be ridiculous. But as a big, big market, it just wasn't there. Most people worked on farms. They didn't handle much cash, and uh, they didn't spend much time in cities, and they couldn't afford uh, a drug habit. And the drug that was being produced in that era was heroin. Now, mm -hmm. they were producing that by and large for the United States market. Uh, in Vietnam, GIs came over, uh, got a taste of, of Golden Triangle heroin, much of it produced in Myanmar, liked it, it's very pure, it's a very intense high, and went back to the United States and brought with them this um, uh, desire to continue using that product. And so because there weren't enough people in Southeast Asia to buy this heroin, the narcotics gangs uh, centered in Myanmar had to ship it all the way to the United States, 8,000, 9,000 miles mm -hmm. away. And yes, it was a giant pain in the ass. It was a giant logistics hurdle for them, but they, they made it work. You go back to those days, there actually was a fair amount of intrigue about the Southeast Asian drug trade. Um, when they shifted to methamphetamine in the 90s, that intrigue went away. And mm. so, of course, you know, 
the global media is heavily influenced by what's happening in the United States. As much as they might like to, the DEA can't make a case that Southeast Asian criminal groups are sustaining drug habits here in the United States. Um, so it doesn't make the news as much. That's pretty much it. Even though, even though the business, the scale of it in Southeast Asia is bigger than ever. Wow. Yeah. Let's, there's so much there. I think maybe <laughs> it could be helpful to start at the beginning of that, or, or at least at where it really took off. And that is, as you referenced, the Golden Triangle. And the Golden Triangle, this is almost a mythical name, almost like a mm. Shangri-La or Timbuktu that people just hear about and sometimes wonder if it's it, like the others, if it's a real place or exaggerated or whatnot. So you've reported on this so much. Can you demystify the Golden Triangle? Tell us about the geography, the population, the history of the region, where this all kicked off from. Sure. People define the Golden Triangle in several different ways. I'll focus on how I define it. I think that I would call the Golden Triangle a uh, narcotics-producing region, uh, in the beginning producing opium in the mountains of Myanmar. Since this is a Myanmar-focused podcast, everyone knows what Shan State is, okay? So mm -hmm. Shan State, and then kind of leaking into Thailand over here, leaking into Laos over here, and leaking into China over there. Really talk triangle implies three countries. We're really talking about four China, Myanmar, the center of it, uh, Thailand, and Laos on the periphery. The mountains of uh, Shan State are exquisite for growing opium. They just really are. Uh, this is a, opium grows really well in places that have a nice long cold spell. And it grows really well in places where the soil is very alkaline um, in the most uh, perfect opium growing region, which is the Wa area of Shan State. The poppies are even more potent. So because the Burmese state has never had a really good grip on Shan State, it's never had been able to exert its authority over Shan State, no matter how much it tries. Mm -hmm. um, people in the mountains there produce opium, and in the 1950s and 1960s, um, that trade was dominated by um, Chinese exiles who came out of China. They were against Maoism, and when Mao Zedong took over China in 1949, he pushed a... a I'm really dumbing down the history, but just to get yeah. through it. <laughs> sure. Super, super encapsulated pushed out um, Chinese anti-communists who were supported by the CIA. The CIA encouraged them to do a Bay of Pigs-style invasion of China to go back in and take it back from the communists. Failed miserably. They attempted this several times. Always failed miserably. And that group of exiles decided to take the guns they had gotten from the CIA, some of the technological equipment they'd gotten from the CIA, including radios, and refocus on trafficking opium and heroin. So they are the originators of the Golden Triangle narcotics trade. This is well, the that, KMT. Yeah, so <laughs> it's funny. They're often referred to as a KMT or Kuomintang. Kuomintang being, um, during the Chinese Civil War, it was the Kuomintang, sort of a fascist-ish regime supported by the U.S. and Mao Zedong's um, communist forces, Kuomintang lost fled to Taiwan, um, where they had a dictatorship there for, for many years. 
And then they had some wings that couldn't make it to Taiwan because they were so far away. They were on the Burma side. China's very large. <laughs> couldn't make it all the way to Taiwan on the coast. And so they pushed into Burma. I've spoken to a lot of those former, I call them exiles. I don't call them Kuomintang because when you ask them or when you refer to them as Kuomintang or KMT, a lot of them will say, hey, don't call me that. Hmm. Um, Why is that? They would say that we operated independently of the Kuomintang in Taiwan. Um, they didn't actually help us out that much. Um, you know, we were really out here fighting uh, the anti-communist crusade, and they didn't help us all that much. And um, they don't want to be considered a division of uh, Taiwan's government. And in fairness, they really weren't. They continued to have a relationship with Kuomintang, but they really were doing their own thing. Uh, I think it is fair to call them a drug cartel in the American mm -hmm. sense, mm -hmm. because in the American sense, cartel um, has ceased to be an economic term and just refers to like a, a narcotics supergroup. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and they were certainly that 3,000 odd soldiers along the Thai Myanmar border in Chiang Rai, Chiang Mai province. Um, continued to traffic drugs. Uh, they were the dominant heroin suppliers of the region, and they continued to receive protection from the U.S. intelligence services because the Cold War was on, the drug trade, whoever controls it is going to be very powerful, and the CIA would have preferred that it's run by, the drug trade is managed by a vetted pro-U.S. group because uh, the alternative would be a communist drug cartel, and they certainly didn't want that. While they were getting the American soldiers addicted and then using them as a vehicle to ship that same product back to the U.S., it's like the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing here. Yes, and um, you know, like I said, I, I try not to view anything in the good versus evil lens. It's mm -hmm. very easy to make um, supervillains out of the CIA. We've all seen movies that do that. <laughs> um, I might enjoy those movies when I'm just hanging out on a Saturday, but right. um, instead of just trying to figure out, are they evil incarnate or the drug guys evil incarnate or blah, blah, blah. I, I try not to get into that. Yeah. Uh, I, I do just want to express their motivation for doing that. So through their eyes, they would say, well, look, opium has been farmed in this region for eons. Um, it, the cold war is on communism is in the in the words of the cia at the time plucking asians like ripe fruit and mm. they're they believed in the the spread of communism would eventually cover the world and so okay look you have to collude or protect or have a relationship with these these drug trafficking groups so be it it's the lesser of of two evils and maybe we'll get around to um, telling them to knock off the drug trafficking someday in the future. But at this point, we can't afford it. So that would be mm -hmm. the CIA position. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then go on with where you left off. This is, I think you, you've led us up to concerning the Golden Triangle, the start of it, where you have the these, uh, I was going to say KMT or nationalist um, uh, remnants, but you're differentiating that they're they're actually making a case that they're apart from that, which is news to me. I, I hadn't heard that. And I should also add, I, I have read that in addition to perhaps the distance being a factor in them reaching Taiwan, 
that um, there was controversy for years about um, them being forced to leave. And, and, you know, even the U.S., even the CIA and the embassy in Yangon, Rangoon at the time, wasn't exactly talking to each other clearly about what the U.S. was actually doing there and how many they were actually evacuating and kind of the subterfuge of if they really were evacuating them or leading them as a um, as a, an anti-communist force that would continue to be supported. But in any case, the ones who are not evacuated to Taiwan or do not find a way there, they stay. And so you're basically saying the drug trade starts by them looking to do that as a way to fund their anti-communist activities. And eventually when they see that they're never really going to overtake communist China, then it just becomes a way of life and you have a new phase. Would that be a correct way to say it? I think that's pretty much it. Yes. And they continue, the ones that didn't get evacuated uh, continue to uh, hold power in that region for quite some time. Really, it, we're talking about running from the early 50s all the way into the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And uh, not many people know this, uh, but according to my research, the Kun Sa, who would later go on to um, be the new king of the drug trade, um, he was initially um, part of the this exile group, which is commonly referred to as Kuomintang. Um, like I, as I said, they don't like to be called that, but um, these exiled Chinese group he himself is half Chinese, half Shan. Mm-hmm. Um, he received seed capital, you might put it, to become a, a sort of a mini warlord in his part of Shan state mm-hmm. and uh, rose through the ranks a little bit. But he, Kun Sa just could not have anyone telling him what to do. He was a huge ego. He could not exist under their structure and he just had to be doing his own thing and so um he betrayed them made several attempts to take over the trade and finally succeeded in the mid-1970s and then he he continued to dominate uh, the heroin trade all the way into the 90s he held it in the mid-90s he held it for a good good 20 years and it is worth stopping and pausing on kun sa because Mm -hmm. This is something that the CIA understands, even though they're certainly not going to admit it in any, any press release. Drugs are power. Um, if you have drugs, you have access to power. You have tremendous finances. You can change borders. Mm-hmm. You can rally fighters. You can destabilize countries. You can start your own country. And that's what Kun Sa did. Uh, Mung Tai is what he called it, which translates to uh, Shan Land. And he established himself as a Robin Hood-like figure, saying these interlopers have come and they have um, taken uh, valuable resources from us, such as opium. Uh, And why isn't it being used to fund a a Shan nation, a a Shan country? Uh, What was one of the Kunsa quotes is, we're beggars sleeping on a bed of gems or a bed of gold, paraphrasing a little bit, but um, why shouldn't we use this valuable resource to establish our own nation? And he did quite successfully. It's, it's, the CIA pays attention to these things because the CIA's job is to evaluate who has power around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it, can it be used to weaken American supremacy or challenge American supremacy? Who do we prop up? Who do we try to, um, who do we, who do we try to take out? And so 
uh, Khun Sa was very much an enemy of the CIA and the DEA, which had come along by the 70s and 80s. And then there was that famous moment in Khun Sa's life where he offered a deal to the Americans to burn his stock in exchange for freedom, I believe it was, and the U.S. turned him down. What, what's your take on that? <laughs> Khun Sa was actually just making an offer that the U.S. had already accepted. This is also kind of buried in the bowels of history. In 1972, um, the DEA was on the cusp of being formed, but the war on drugs had started. And the United States, there was a fervor in the United States to have a war on drugs, in my opinion, because the war in Vietnam wasn't working out or didn't work out. And so they wanted mm -hmm. a war, a new war. Um, so amid this anti drug fervor in the United States. The DEA was on the cusp of being established. Um, the anti-narcotics anti officials from the U.S. went to um, this exile group, former Kuomintang, um, which the CIA always referred to as the CIF, Chinese Irregular Forces. One of the reasons that they're not well known, this is just an aside, is because no one knows what the hell to call them. And so um, it doesn't make for a very cohesive narrative. Mm. But mm -hmm. and again, I'm, I'm referring to the same CIA protected group on the Thai Myanmar border. Um, in 1972, they were the kings and anti-narcotics agents went to them and said, uh, through the ties, will you give up your stockpile? Will you just turn into being tea farmers? Will you leave the drug trade behind? If you want to do that, thank you for your service to the United States. Um, we're not going to hit you with any criminal charges. How does that sound? And under pressure, this group said, okay, fine. So in 1972, U.S. anti-narcotics officials show up to a uh, military base in Thailand. There's heaps, heaps of opium. Um, many, many, I, I wish I could remember the, the number of tons offhand. It's something like 20 tons or something heaped. Um, with the ties, the U.S. narcotics anti-narcotics officials burn it and with U.S. taxpayer money, they pay $1 million to uh, the exiles, this exile group. Um, so the U.S. was willing to cut deals like that with certain groups. Um, mm -hmm. just, just, I can't remember if that $1 million is in today's money or in the money at the time. But anyway, they paid a lot of money. I just don't want to mm -hmm. make a factual uh, misstatement here. Um, Khun Sa was looking back at that and saying, well, you did it before, you know, now I'm the king. So mm -hmm. if you really, if you want to win the war on drugs, cut the BS, pay me, and I'll burn my opium crop. And I think the implication was, you can continue paying me <laughs> in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. um, you can go back and find many quotes from Kun Sa saying, actually, I know opium is terrible, and it's, 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 it is a blight on the world. And you know, I, I want to be part of the solution. I want to get rid of it, but you got to work with me here. So when he made that offer, it wasn't so preposterous. Uh, you have to understand that the U.S. had done something like that only a decade prior. So it wasn't a ridiculous thing to, to do. Mm, right. Thanks for that background. So in going over the history of it, we've talked about most of the major players, we've talked about the PLA, the, the Chinese Communist Army, the uh, KMT, as well as the Irregular Forces, the CIA, and um, and a little bit of the 
what we now call the EAOs, the ethnics that are there. The one major player we haven't touched on is the military regime itself. Well, I guess, actually, if you want to go back far enough, you're looking at the, the parliamentary democracy period of UNU, then leading to Nguyen. But whatever you want to call the central authority in Rangoon at the time, that's another major player in this. And their relationship to the drug trade has really changed quite dramatically over the years. So tell us about where the regime, the central authority down south fits into this. Sure. So from the Nguyen era running all the way through the Kinyun era and um, until today, they've gone by different names, but there have been in Burma military-backed drug trafficking organizations call them gangs if you want to sometimes they're they're so small they're practically family clan sized groups and the deal is started in the 60s and continues today um if you're up in the mountains especially if you're an ethnic minority there's a deal on the table where you can convert your militia into what was originally called a p2c i'm sorry excuse me actually that's the current name what was originally called a kakwayi right use my terrible burmese pronunciation kky KKY, sure. Um, Self-defense forces. And essentially, it was a license to engage in crime, namely drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're not going to, this is the deal. The military or the Burmese police are not going to come after you. You do your thing. You traffic drugs, you produce drugs, you do whatever you need to do. You just need to hold down this territory. If you're Sean, we need to, you spying on your Sean neighbors. You know, if you're Lahu, you need to be spying on your Lahu neighbors, Karini, spying on your Karini neighbors. Um, if we call upon you to fight them, you're going to have to fight them. Mm-hmm. But this is their way of tapping into the powerful narcotics trade to extend their power into the mountains. Uh, you really, the thinking is not all that different than what the CIA was. Doing. I was going to say, I was just <laughs> thinking that it's just it's just frankly practical. Um, so up until today, now they call them, uh, P2SIT, but they are these small ish, uh, groups, almost always, um, ethnic minorities because that's, that's who lives up there. And that's who, uh, the Burmese regime is always concerned about rebelling, um, can take this deal. And they look, they've offered it to all the major players. They've offered it to the, the most powerful, um, army in Shan State, <laughs> which is uh, the United Wa State Army. And of mm-hmm. course, they've laughed because it's, it's not a good deal for them. They're powerful mm-hmm. enough. They can kind of right. give the regime, politely give the regime the finger, so to speak. Like, <laughs> and thanks, right. but no thanks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, the, this is how the military is engaged in, in the narcotics trade. Then if you, if you want to look at throughout the history, um, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s until today, you'll have regional commanders who are taking kickbacks. So uh, the, the Burmese military controls the paved roads, the highways. It's very convenient if you're trafficking drugs because it's all about logistics. You're moving mm-hmm. something from point A to point B. Um, the military uh, has all the checkpoints. And so if you want to travel through that checkpoint with, in the 1970s, it would be opium or heroin. Now it would be crystal meth or yaba. They're going to be paying a toll, and it's going to be going to the the regional commander to sustain um, his, you know, fiefdom in that corner of Myanmar. So th- there's no side that's not in 
the narcotics trade. They're just, mm-hmm. there just there isn't. Everybody mm-hmm. is involved, um, at least on some levels. I don't want to make too blanket of a statement because post-coup, things are very different. But in general, looking at the scope of the country's history, everybody has had some role to play. Mm, right. And we'll get into post-coup later in the conversation once we flesh out this context a bit more to better understand where we're at now. You referenced just just recently just how the... Um, the the nature of the drugs that are being made <clears throat> and transported have changed. So this is also something you address in the book, Hello Shadowlands. Can you tell us what they changed to and why they changed? Uh, why they changed from heroin to methamphetamine. Correct, yeah. Yeah. Um, heroin started to fall out of vogue in the late 90s. One reason is, and if I could, because this is a Myanmar-centric podcast i can use some actual names hmm. um wei si kang he is the longtime chief financial officer of the united wa state army uh former protege of kun sa and someone who started off as a young man in a cia backed listening post that was run by taiwanese intelligence listening mm-hmm. uh into china so that's just a brief background on this guy mm-hmm. he's he's had quite the career mm-hmm. um uh, Wei Sakang really is the face of this transformation. Um, the degree to which he really had his hands on pulling the levers and making things happen, you, you could dispute that, but he's, he's, he's right at the center of it. What him and people like him realized is that uh, producing heroin is just a bigger pain in the neck than producing methamphetamine. When you produce heroin, you have to control a lot of territory, a lot of territory, because someone has to grow the opium. Um, you have to then go out and collect the, the opium. Sometimes there's a bad cold spell and the poppies don't produce very um, potent opium. Uh, it's just it's subject to all of these whims of nature and, mm-hmm. and, and um, inefficiencies. Then, of course, you have to get the opium down to a lab, which would usually be in the border areas of Thailand, convert it to heroin, and, and then you sell it to, to an international distributor. That's usually how it works. Methamphetamine, oh, my God, so much easier. <laughs> you, mm. you, you get barrels of chemicals uh, from China, previously India, but I think now mostly China. You bring those barrels to your uh, meth lab, again, somewhere on the border, you refine them into methamphetamine, you're done. That is so. <laughs> that is just so much more efficient than having to worry about farmers and weather and um, and law enforcement because the DEA and the CIA uh, can spy on what you're doing from the air, from satellites. And the CIA actually had a formula back in the day um, that they could look down from above and see how many. Um, acres or hectares were covered in in opium poppies and then they would um, uh, apply that to a formula and try to determine how much heroin could be produced in that year you don't want look you just no corporation no person associated with this wants the cia to know anything about their business right so um methamphetamine people like wei sakang really understood that synthetics are the future. I mean, he, he was onto this before the Mexican cartels were. I'm not saying he was the first to produce methamphetamine mm-hmm. in mass, 
but he was the first to go pretty much all synthetic. And it has paid off really well. I mean, he, he, him and people like him really charted the future of the synthetic narcotics trade in Southeast Asia. And that's what it's all about. I mean, um, just to give you some numbers, $60 billion estimated by the UN as the value of the methamphetamine trade. Heroin, about $10 billion. So it's not wow. nothing. $10 billion yeah. ain't nothing. <laughs> but it, uh, it's not meth. Right. So give us, break down the numbers. Uh, if you, I don't know if you could do this off the top of your head. You, you provide this in the book, which I found really fascinating, of how much it costs to actually produce a pill. And then as the pill makes it way, as the meth makes it way, makes its way along to different countries, how much it ends up selling for at top dollar. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, I don't want to pull any figures out of my head because they might be wrong, but I can speak in generalities. Mm-hmm. The cost per pill of uh, Yama meth pills, uh, very, 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 very low. Very mm-hmm. low. Um, it, the value of that pill or the value of that kilo of crystal methamphetamine is going to jump every time you cross a border. So let's talk about how it works in the, the modern day. Um, these days, the model is actually what I call the landlord model. So a group, uh, an armed group in Myanmar that controls territory will allow outsiders to come in and rent them land upon which they would build the meth lab and run it. The armed group, let's just say, such as the United Wa State Army, they're going to sit back. The local commander is going to sit back. He doesn't really want anything to do with it. He's just going to receive a cut. He's going to receive his rent. So... It's usually going to be a Chinese organized crime group that's going to come in. Thank you for renting us the land. We're producing the meth. And then they are going to pass it off to another group that's friendly with the armed group. So this is a smuggling group that focuses on moving it down to the border, say the Thai border. Um, From there, they're going to give it to yet another smuggling group that has specific expertise on getting from Burma to Thailand. That's all they do. And they may or may not have contacts with security forces on Thailand on the other side. I live in Thailand, so I'm not going to speculate on that. Maybe Mm -hmm. they do, maybe they don't. Who can say? Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then they're going to, uh, that's going to then get moved to, maybe it just stays in Thailand for local consumption. It's going to be moved for ports where it can go anywhere from Australia to South Korea to uh, Indonesia. At each step that I mentioned, meth lab, initial smuggler, cross-border smuggler, smuggler that gets it to the port, uh, smuggler that gets it to uh, another country, the value is going to jump. And so by the time you get to Australia, it's going to be quite expensive. The The opposite is true. The closer you are to the source, mm-hmm. it's going to be cheaper. So mm-hmm. if you're buying a gram of crystal meth in Bangkok, price has really fallen a lot, but like a typical price over the past few years would be something like um, the equivalent of 80 US dollars. All right, well, if you go up to Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai, right on the border, it might be $60. I'm just kind of pulling these pulling these yeah. numbers out of the air just to, to, to illustrate it. Sure. So that's, that's, that's sort of the value added supply chain of how it works. Right, and this gets to some of the reporting you did in Kachin State, which I wanna to get to because this is in your book, Hello Shadowlands. I just wanna give uh, a further shout out to that as we move along and encourage re- listeners to check that out. It's really quite 
a lot of great stuff in there. And I, before we get into the Myanmar sections, I just want to highlight you also in the book, you have chapters on abortion pills in the Philippines, North Korean restaurants across Southeast Asia. You describe a, a crazy party town in Southern Thailand that is the target of Muslim extremists and also go into the dog food trade. And by dog food, I don't mean food for dogs. I mean, uh, cooking dogs and eating them, humans eating dogs in Vietnam. So you, you have a wide range of illicit activities that you cover uh, just to highlight what else listeners can find if they check out your book, Hello Shadowlands. But getting to the Myanmar chapters, which, which focus on Kachin State largely, and which segue into what you're saying now about the cost of the meth, depending on where you are and where you're accessing it. Let's look at what you talk about in Kitchen State and just how rife and terrible the problems are with drug addiction among the Kachin people and what's happening with um, in their community. Uh, you, you reference how it's gotten so bad that some Kachins are actually, actually suspect that there has been an intentional effort by the Bamar to flood the youth with cheap access to these drugs as a way to just completely control them and take over. You, as I was reading this, I was had this idea in my mind, which you then reference a few pages later, where you're saying this is not unlike the some of the fears and the paranoia that um, different Black Americans felt in uh, the 1980s that the the cheap drugs was a, a CIA or an American government plot to actually undermine the black community by flooding them and destroying their communities with these cheap drugs. So go on to describe a bit about what you wrote about in those chapters focusing on the devastation we're seeing with, and this is all pre-coup again for listeners, um, but your, uh, what your reporting came across in terms of the, the devastation that the access to these cheap drugs are causing among the Kachin people. Yeah. So uh, in Kachin State, referring back to some things we talked about uh, a minute ago, uh, there are quite a few of these what they would call self-defense forces, P2SIT, Border Guard forces. Mm -hmm. You know, they're uh, armed groups, militia that are affiliated uh, with Myanmar's military. So as I mentioned before, <laughs> unwritten license to do almost anything that they want when it comes to uh, trafficking, producing narcotics. Um, because it's so close to the source, of course, people in Kachin State um, could buy these drugs very, very cheaply, even though the main market might be elsewhere because Kachin State, um, you know, the average uh, Kachin person doesn't have a whole lot of money. They're trying to get it to countries uh, that do have a lot of money, such as Australia. But anyway, yeah, swimming in the cities, very easy to buy. Um, when I was there, uh, you could go into tea shops, buy it. Everybody knew there would be somebody in every neighborhood that would sell usually yaba is what they could afford. Mm -hmm. um, also heroin, um, kind of cheaper heroin. In fact, the, the heroin that I saw there didn't look like the pristine, what they call China white, which is really high purity coveted heroin for heroin users. It was kind of gritty and orange and it, mm. uh, it it looks like an inferior inferior quality of heroin anyway it was there uh, widely available the kachin people have a long history of banding together as an ethnic group as a race and defending their homeland uh, i would i would argue that kachin like other parts of myanmar has never been fully dominated by sure. the, the central government. And the Kachin people are very proud of that, and they have many reasons to be proud of that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, 
I think many, many Kachin people, um, just I'm just repeating things they said, so I'm not speculating, would like it to go back to the way things were when essentially that they got to run their own affairs, uh, maybe through a federal system, maybe through an independent system, whatever. So in reaction to that, um, you had this group start up uh, called Patjasan. It's a vigilante group, basically. Um, a lot of the guys in Pachasan had connections to the Kachin Independence Army, which is the, the main Kachin resistance force. But they would go out with sticks and not guns, and they would go into communities and just snatch drug users right out of their house. I rode around on motorbikes with them in the town of Michina, which is the capital of Kachin State, and went into people's homes they would interrogate them, you know, picture you're sitting there in your house and like 14 guys and women roll in with vests on, walkie talkies and mm-hmm. bamboo sticks mm-hmm. would ask them questions, pull them out of there. And if they thought that they were drug users, which in every, uh, I think in every scenario that I was in, when, when we would approach somebody's house, they always made that determination. Yes, we're going to take this person. And they would bring them to um, sort of a command center. It was on church property, but it was a small building um, lit up at night where just very austere cement floors, bamboo walls, bring them in there and haul them before a court. They had their own court system. It was like a parallel society essentially Mm. uh, totally parallel to what the the central government was running they would just interrogate them if they didn't get the answers they were looking for they would whack them with bamboo rods quite hard and um basically trying to pry loose information who sold it to you who who are your drug using buddies so that they could have people to go snatch up the next night and it all sounds very uh severe and extreme uh, I tried to portray this in my book through their perspective. I mean, they're at their wits' end. They mm-hmm. would argue they're Baptist mostly. Uh, many Kachin are Roman Catholic, but the majority are Baptist. And this was just country Baptist justice, is what I'd call it. I'm from the South, and that's <laughs> that's what mm-hmm. it looked like to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they just they felt like they had no other option because, as you um, as you said or insinuated earlier. They believed they were under the boot of this system, this military-imposed system that was unrelenting and just gleeful to see their people lapse into addiction instead of going out, picking up a rifle, and resisting. Um, The parallels to how um, urban Black communities in the United States uh, have expressed, uh, the feelings that they've expressed around this, are there. Primarily... You know, I was very happy to explore the idea that it was intentional. I left thinking that it probably has more to do with neglect. Uh, The central state is more than happy to let uh, drug producing groups do whatever they want in the Kachin areas. They don't want it in the Burmese areas, but the Kachin areas, sure. Um, And it's beneficial for them politically and the consequences, eh, who cares? hey, maybe a bunch of Kachin guys get strung out and can't fight the central state, and that's a bonus. But I don't think that it was intrinsic to the design. So 
uh, it was one of the stranger experiences of my life because <laughs> the men who were just whacking and beating these guys, these alleged drug users, they pulled <laughs> out of the house. Otherwise, very nice guys, you know? Yeah, well, Otherwise, we should mention. Nice. We should mention it's not just the assault and the beating and, and the imprisonment they're doing. There's a huge faith-based component to this. As you mentioned, they're mainly Baptists. And as you describe in the book, it's it, it's not only this kind of tough love and forced uh, withdrawal under the assumption that these people are drug users, but it's also bringing Christian messages of accepting Jesus and coming clean to Jesus that are along with their mission. Yes. And um, I don't know the effectiveness of these programs, but they're very much there. But they weren't just trying to hurt people. And I should point out that they they left the uh, Burmese population alone. They were only mm -hmm. going after their own Kachen mm -hmm. people. Once you were deemed to be a drug user, you're taken to a camp out in the jungle where they'll feed you. Uh, there's a lot of laying of hands type of um, preaching and Bible study. There's a lot of sort of baptism style dunking you underwater to mm -hmm. so that you can be born again as a, a better person. And, you know, they, they want these people, they want their own people to not be on drugs. That was yeah, the, sure. that, that was where it was coming from. Look, <laughs> the way I felt was like, what, what do you want them to do? I mean, the central state completely neglected them. Yeah. And, and, and as a Kachin person, you're already suspected as a minority in, in Myanmar of being seditious. I mean, yeah. they have a deep-seated fear of going into government facilities. So even if Myanmar central state did build rehab facilities that were mm -hmm. made of gold and gleaming, <laughs> they would have serious reservations about yeah. going into them. They're make they're doing the best they could with what little they had. And I, most of the reaction I got from that, um, that reporting from Americans who don't follow Myanmar very closely was pretty negative. They thought hmm. it was barbaric and awful, hmm. and but that wasn't my my view. I tend to take a more complicated view of it. Yeah, and that was the impression I got from it. I think it's also it goes into how you approach the subjects of not wanting to be to to portray someone purely on the side of good or evil, but to want to show their motivations in, in what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that may, maybe it's just that I'm more than familiar with the complexities and the lack of easy answers that come to Myanmar. But I, I, I thought it was both barbaric as well as, as you just said, throwing your hands up and saying, well, well what do you do? What, what, what other options are there? I, I understood the rationale of how it had come to this. And it was just tragic to depict a, a humanity coming to this and that this this is what they were forced to do but given the realities of the state and of the society they were living in and the challenges that they were being faced which i i know more than enough of from other experiences with other parts of myanmar it, it does become one of those things of well you're you're not left with any good answers and so what um um as you're left with no good answers what are the from uh, from a series of choices none of which are good which one do you decide to do and how do you do it yeah, and I would just add that narcotics for them, you know, let's look, let's say that I got addicted to heroin and my family was trying to get me off of it. The focus would be on um, how the heroin was ruining my physical health and uh, my ability to function in our society, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a whole other element to it if you're Kachin 
And we're just focusing on Kachin right now. We can do this for mm -hmm. Shan. We can do this for, for, many other, for, for many other ethnic groups. There's a whole other dimension in that they saw narcotics as something that fuels the machine that's grinding them down, mm. right? So every time you're um, buying heroin or buying methamphetamine, the money is going to the local armed group, which has betrayed your cause and made common cause with the military. And you're funding the, the guys that are making our lives miserable. There's yeah. a whole other element to it. And I'm sure that that goes into the ferocity of those bamboo wax. I mean, you know, they, they mm -hmm. when they're hitting these guys, it's coming from that place. Like, don't you understand mm -hmm. the seriousness of this? And yeah, that was their perspective. Mm. So tell us where the KIA fits into all this and the Kachin authorities. Um, the KIA, as I understand it, does make quite a bit of money from Jade. And so when you're looking at um, untaxed, uh, under the table, unconventional ways of making money, mm -hmm. uh, the KIA, I think, largely relies on Jade. And you can see in air, like the Jade mining area in Kachin State, uh, Pakan. Uh, you can see that there is a scramble to um, dominate certain jade mines because that money will then go into either the Myanmar um, military's uh, coffers or it can go towards the KIA, which would continue to sustain its rebellion. Mm -hmm. So um, whether or not the Kachin throughout the Kachin Independence Army throughout its history has ever um, trafficked in heroin, uh, perhaps, I mean, I, I have seen their name pop up in... CIA documents dating back to the, the 70s. This, at this point, and look, I can't peer inside the KIA. I've, I've met KIA, KIA officers a number mm -hmm. of times. But I can't peer inside their inner workings. But from what I understand, um, as an organization, they're genuinely opposed to narcotics. I mean, they see the big picture that it is, um, that to engage in that is not worth it and that it primarily sustains the Myanmar regime and its, its little allies, these militia, these Kachin militia that have, what they would say, betrayed the Kachin cause and, and sided with the bad guys. Mm, right. So just one more question before we move on from Kachin and look at the wider scope of this, and that's you touched upon it just now with Jade and with the illicit fun, the, the, the illicit profit that comes from Jade, which is another huge... Um, uh, profit mind for those that are involved in that. And looking at Kachin, um, do you see any relationship to the illicit drug trade and the illicit jade? How how are these two things intertwined or or how do they function on separate planes? Um, if I had to make an observation about that, I would just note that the jade is primarily flowing into China. Uh, mm. China as we all know, likely to have the largest economy on earth at some point in this century. Uh, there's just a lot of buying power in China. So the jade flows into China. The narcotics don't flow into China. Why is that? That's because the Chinese government has, uh, has relationships with many of the armed groups that are along the China-Myanmar border. It has very close relationships with them, and it has understandings that Okay, listen. We're going to supply you with uh, with weapons. We're going to supply you with quite sophisticated weapons, including shoulder-fired missiles. In the case of the United Wa State Army, which controls a big, big, big chunk of the Myanmar-China border. Um, however, if you're involved in drug trafficking, 
it ain't coming back into China because if you do that, we're going to cut you off. You're not going to get fuel. You're not going to get parts for your machines. You're not going to get Chinese investors. You're not going to get subsidized road crews that can come in and build your highways. Mm -hmm. You want to produce drugs, send them somewhere else. Don't send them. China is, as a government, is highly, highly, highly uh, intolerant of, of drug use. So... Yeah, jade does flow into China. Drugs, mm-hmm. not so much. They all mm-hmm. flow pretty much into Thailand, which is sort of the Mexico of, of, of Southeast Asia in, in, as when you're thinking about drug routes. Mm-hmm. It's this transit country um, where the drugs then flow to, to even wealthier countries. So that, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's one small observation about that. Great. Yeah, well put. So before moving on to post-coup, which is going to have a lot to untangle, uh, I'm wondering during the NLD years, 2015, 2020, where we had a a transition to a semi-democracy, did that impact at all what was going on with what we were seeing in involving the production and uh, transportation of these narcotics? No, is the short answer. Mm-hmm. Um, if the uh, National League for Democracy had some grand plan to um, strike at the heart of the narcotics trade, which is so powerful in Myanmar, it certainly never panned out. You know, the NLD really didn't have much control over what the military was doing. That was the nature of their pact. Um, okay, we'll run uh, the ministries that oversee education, health, the things that the military didn't want to do. Uh-huh. Anything involving the hinterlands and guys holding guns and weapons, no, that was all still covered by Myanmar's military. So um, during the NLD years, uh, the central government, the central military still continued to build these relationships with drug trafficking militia up in the in the in the highlands, in the, in the hills of Shan State, in the hills of Kachin. So nothing really changed. Um, and I think it would have been extremely difficult for the NLD to even try to cut that off. I, that, that would have been an, perceived by the military uh, as an overreach, and I don't think that they would have been very successful. So I don't, I don't blame them for that. You know, uh, there's mm-hmm. other things we can blame the NLD for doing wrong. That's not something I think they had any ability to to control. Sure. Right. Now, one of the things you end your book on is what you were just starting to understand in terms of the transport of drugs from Shan State all the way uh, westward into Bangladesh and, and into, Rakhine, into Rakhine State and then into Bangladesh. And you remarked in this closing chapter how uh, unusual and surprised you were to find drugs moving in that direction and and, a court and and having to navigate the kind of complex checkpoints they would need to get to uh, to go into different areas and countries. So um, this, I mean, it also, this was also something that stood out to me because I, I can't remember when you published your book, but of course the Rohingya crisis was blowing up during that time as well. And so in my mind, I was wondering about just this combination of extremely complex factors of the Rohingya crisis and the, uh, the exodus of, of refugees fleeing the violence into Bangladesh, as you also have this growing meth trade that, and the, this meth is suddenly finding its way into these camps and into Bangladesh and Rakhine State. Um, what did you find in that reporting? 
Well, I find myself, le- if I was surprised, then it's probably because I was just catching on to that trend. I'm, I find myself very not surprised about it now, <laughs> I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, the militarization of Rakhine State, the flood of uh, Myanmar's central military troops into that area makes it, in fact, a, a perfect environment for the flow of drugs because you can the military can create uh, relationships or, or build on these relationships with the producers who are up in Shan State, and it can have a pretty steady flow all the way towards Bangladesh. Bangladesh just, it, it was an untapped market. Um, Bangladesh isn't necessarily the most uh, enticing market if you're looking at a place to sell drugs because it's not a terribly wealthy country, but uh, it was ripe for... Um, it was ripe for expansion. Thailand, pretty saturated, I would guess. Mm-hmm. If you want to buy meth pills in Thailand, um, you know where to get them. They're probably not expanding there. Um, Bangladesh on the far side, okay, that was ripe for expansion. And, and since then, you, 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 we've seen the meth, meth sales. Uh, sales of Myanmar-produced methamphetamine into Bangladesh go up and up and up and up mm-hmm. and um, it probably hasn't quite saturated that market yet but yeah look there's they've got the roads they've got the the highways they've got the checkpoints um, there's really nothing stopping the meth from flowing from Shan state all the way to Bangladesh right so this is bringing us up to the current reality post coup which is we're now two years plus into um, basic question just to kick us off what are you seeing in the changes with narcotics? that have occurred since the coup took place and the resistance and the conflict have been increasing? Yeah, I'll just start by saying the the coup has done no favors to my ability to report in Myanmar. Sure. Obviously, um, having interviewed um, PDF, NUG, um, people who are actively resisting, I would be afraid to go back to Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Um so I haven't been back since the coup. I, mm-hmm. I don't really know many journalists who have unless they've gone um, under these very rare trips that are sponsored by the, the military. And I'm not interested in doing anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that, that kind of poked my eyes out, so to speak. Um, however, I've still remained very active in looking at the border areas where, frankly, the central military never had that great of control anyway. Mm-hmm. It has been said by the UN, specifically specifically the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, that methamphetamine production has gone way up since the coup, and perhaps they're correct. Um, I don't. They have police sources. Um, they have police sources all throughout the region. That's their determination. Uh, perhaps that's true. I, I can't independently verify that. I would just Mm -hmm. say that dynamic hasn't really changed all that much, Um, despite what uh, some pretty silly claims in um, state media in Myanmar. I don't see the emerging um, resistance groups being active in the drug trade. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't seen that happen yet. Um, And so the regular players that I described earlier are still doing their thing. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think they're done expanding. I think it may be going up, but I'm not sure the coup has had a direct 
relationship. What I will say is as, as fighting intensifies in certain parts of the country, and I'm mainly thinking of Eastern Myanmar, mm -hmm. a lot of the uh, revolutionary activities happening in, in Sagain state, which is never a thoroughfare for narcotics to begin with. So mm -hmm. let's, let's uh, not look at that for now. But in, in Eastern Shan state, Kareni uh, areas, these relationships with local militia become all the more important because uh, the Myanmar's military doesn't just have to expand its troops into an area um, and worry about um, the conventional ethnic armed groups that would have been there, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now it has these upstart PDF groups um, that it has to worry about. So it's 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 paranoia and it's um, it's need to maintain security in those areas has gone up. And so I wouldn't now I'm speculating. I wouldn't be surprised if it intensified relationships with the drug trafficking militia in those areas. Mm, right. So you say that in post coup, it's generally the usual players, the main players that are still involved in narcotics. Um, can you refresh our memory about who these main players are today in 2023, as well as how they're benefiting. I, I mean, we've known how they benefited uh, traditionally, historically, through the mass profits they're making. But in a time of coup and resistance, is do you see any indication or have any thoughts about where this mass profit could be going, what it could be funding, or is it just making rich people richer or staying within the community as it always has? Yeah. I'll address your second question first. Um, I'm going to go into the realm of speculation, and this might be an area that makes people uncomfortable, right? But, mm -hmm. but here we go. Um, there may come a time, and maybe that time has already arrived. I've seen no evidence of this, okay? But there mm -hmm. may come a time when uh, the pro-democracy resistance groups, for lack of money, will be tempted to at least maybe just tax uh, uh, drugs passing through an area they control. Because without money, your revolution is done. They know that. Yeah. <laughs> this is not news yep. to them. You need, you need to buy food, medicine, weapons, the whole thing. So if there is any engagement in the drug trade uh, with pro-democracy forces, again, I've seen zero evidence of that. Um, you know, one small way you could do that is just tax people coming through your area. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the most hands-off way to do it. You're like, hey, anything that comes through here, uh, we tax it. Um, I have a hard time imagining them um, getting involved in the production and actual traffic of narcotics. Mm -hmm. But strange things can happen if this thing drags on 10, 15 years into the future. Mm -hmm. Is this necessarily make them the bad guys? Well, in my opinion, not necessarily. Drugs are power. Kunza, mm -hmm. um, he created a veritable nation uh, ba on the back of the drug trade. I mean, we're talking about covered 5,000 square miles, controlled big patches of border. It had its own flags, had its own ID cards. I uh -huh. mean, so, some of the, the wildest dreams of pro-revolutionary forces now, he got there through drugs. What was his reputation on the world stage? Awful. I mean, you know, the U.S. government called him the king of heroin and, you know, the prince of death and all these things. Mm -hmm. um, what is the reputation of the pro-revolutionary forces around the world? It's very good. I mean, they're held in very high esteem because they're seen as very, um, pretty pure. I don't think I'm exaggerating too much when I say that. Um, and so you make, you, you, if some, if one group 
because the pro-revolutionary forces uh, are are really varied. It's kaleidoscopic. But if one group went that direction, it would have it would get smeared, right? Yeah. yeah. So and it would be a huge um, kick in the teeth when it came to perhaps morale and image and ability mm-hmm. to get legitimacy. But it mm-hmm. would bring in money. It's a horrible choice to make. It's a horrible yeah. choice to make, and that, and I bring it up only because war is full of horrible choices, and yeah. we'll see. Uh, perhaps they'll be victorious before they have to um, even consider a choice like that. Um, what I would also say is that um, this is highly overlooked. There is essentially a another country inside Myanmar that isn't talked about very much. And I'm referring mm-hmm. to Wa State. Mm-hmm. Wa State controls as much soil as the Netherlands. Um, it has all the things that Kunsa has, only more. I mean, it has its own highways, schools, hospitals. Uh, again, ID cards, driver's licenses, flags, anthems, sense of, sense of nationhood, if not countryhood. I make a distinction between a nation and a country here. Um, no, it's not trying to seek independence of the United Nations because why kick up a fuss? It doesn't need to. Mm-hmm. Myanmar central mili- central uh, military forces cannot walk into Wa State. They'll get stopped like anybody else. I mean, they control yep. their yep. borders. Yep. A big funder of this de facto nation is narcotics, taxing narcotics produced on their soil by outside criminal groups. Look, it works. It works. <laughs> drugs can, drugs are power. I don't know how else to put it. So um, I don't know. It, it's, it's really something to consider uh, moving forward. And I may not have answered your first mm. question. I think I just answered the latter part, but now I've forgotten <laughs> the first one. Mm, no, well, I wanted to segue on the WA because that was another question I had is, I mean, to me, they're the real mystery player in all of this. And they're talked about in terms of their allegiances, uh, the, the the relationship they have with the other EAOs, with China, with the, the military regime, uh, as well as with their their sense of autonomy now and how much money they're able to make through narcotics. And um, they and, and and as well as the, the the size of their army and how developed they are and the kinds of military technology they have, and so one of the big mysteries I've seen kicked around since the start of the coup is which direction would the Wa go? Would they stay neutral and just want to keep what's theirs and not engage, or would they lean this way at their Chinese influences, or would they lean that way with some of the other ethnic groups? it remains a mystery, but do you have any thoughts or comments on this mystery of what the WA might be doing, what they could do, or any inclinations you have? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I haven't talked about this publicly before, but um, for the past four years, I've been in close contact with um, a lot of UWSA, mostly former soldiers, and including one um, formerly very high-ranking leader. Uh, so I've looked at the WA situation very closely. I have um, a view of the WA that is not typical. I mean, the typical view of the WA, I think, frankly, frankly steeped in racism. You know, they're all barbaric headhunters. That is uh-huh. that is absolutely not true. The WA have mm-hmm. achieved um, this astounding feat. Look, they've they've got what's essentially their own de facto nation, as I just pointed out. It's right there on the map, but you'd never know it, right? <laughs> so um, 
they are a nation within a nation. And when you're talking about what's going to happen to Myanmar post-coup, to leave the Wa out of the conversation is is irresponsible. And mm-hmm. I, I, I like I like where you're where you're thinking, Joa. Yes, we, we need to be asking what role could they play. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna have to speak in generalities here because the Wa people are not a monolith. And sure. there's when you really get into their situation, you realize that there's a lot of debate within within that government as to um, how their future should look. But I'll say this much. Um, in general, there is an attitude in Wa State that uh, the lowlanders don't really care about us. And so we're not going to go out of our way to, um, to, to, to save the lowlanders. It's just, it's just, look, we're up sure. here on our mountain. We're doing yep. our own thing. And um, you guys have always thought that we were uh, outcast. And so that's just how it is. Um, one way that they might be able to play a role is, look, the Wa have weapons that the revolution, the pro-democracy forces need badly. Mm-hmm. Um, pro, pro-democracy forces, what do they need first and foremost? They need um, uh, rifles, automatic rifles. The Wa can produce their own rifles. So it would, I, I think some of this is already happening. I don't know for sure. Um, it would make sense that you could go and exchange cash for rifles. And oh, they uh, are. Yeah, they're they supplying are, right? other ethnic groups. Yeah. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd heard the same things too. <laughs> the big question is: um, are the ability to, uh, you know, the, the, the air power control that That's right. the military has, and why are the only the, the the resistance forces are not able to acquire them? They have not been able to yet. The Western um, allies, or if you want to call them allies, but the U.S. and Europe has not gone anywhere close to um, providing them with. Uh, with any technology that would take out um, airstrikes that are coming with fear of how that, just I'm referencing an interview I had with Miles Vining it's, um, mm-hmm. who has been studying this. And so I just want to give credit where, uh, where these views are coming from. Um, in the interview with him, he talked about how this is really the game changer he sees as what can shift the power to the resistance movement is the incredible air superiority that the military has and the inability of the resistance forces to get anything like this, the Western countries and, and, and anyone else really being hesitant to want to supply them for the fear of taking down a commercial jet or, or something else that, that he cited. But he referenced that there is old Soviet technology that the, um, I believe, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, that the, that the WA have that they could make, they could lend this and give use of that to other uh, um, resistance fighters and and EAOs, but that's not being done yet. But that's that's mm-hmm. the that's the thing that he cited that could really be a game changer if that was to take place. That's true. The Wa have these FN six um, shoulder fired missiles that can take down jets, and nothing matters more than countering the air superiority um, mm-hmm. of Myanmar's military. Uh, don't if. People that are hoping that the Wa will transfer some of that to the the, the lowlanders don't get your hopes up. I'm just saying mm-hmm. it. it I, I'll be very surprised to see that happen. What would have to happen is um, the Wa would have to decide. Let me just back up real quick. Whatever happens, the Wa, speaking in generalities, consider this a fight between lowlanders, and so whoever emerges as the uh-huh. winner, they'll cut the same deal with them. Yeah. Hey, we're not trying to leave Myanmar. We're going to stay in these borders. Don't tell us what to do. 
<laughs> that's it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, whoever wins, they'll cut a deal with. They would have to believe that the pro-revolutionaries, uh, the pro-democracy revolutionaries are on the cusp of winning. Uh -huh. Another big factor is um, this is this is the hottest debate within WA politics. Mm -hmm. uh, how much, uh, to what degree should they let uh, the Chinese government tell them what to do? At mm -hmm. this point, China's government, I hope I'm not overstating this too much, effectively has veto power on what the WA can do. If the WA are going to make a major policy decision, they will check with the Chinese government first. Uh, that's not because they are just in love with the Chinese government. That's because they get all of their material from China. I mean, all of it. And so the, the phone, the mobile phones they use, it's on the Chinese telecoms grid. Every, mm -hmm. their, their whole country is, is reliant on China. And so they, they're essentially a, a protectorate or a client state of, of China, just as the U.S. has its own client states. And so uh, the Chinese government would have to um, allow that or someone within Wa State would have to, in pursuit of money or, or because this person had their own political leanings, mm -hmm. um, go rogue a little bit. Yeah. And so um, it's really complicated for them. Yeah. It, it, it's really right. complicated for them too. Um, I, there has been talk. I mean, I think it's a, the the dream of a lot of um, of the pro democracy fighters that it, uh, the United States or Europe would provide uh, anti aircraft weapons to them. Uh -huh. um, all I would say to that is you would have this very Hmm. Complicated scenario where within the same country, you would have a U.S. armed uh, resistance force in the same country as a China-backed um, army. Which That's is insane. Yes. So I, I don't know what people at the CIA or the State Department are thinking. I'm sure they are aware of the complications that would bring up at this. You know, imagine doing that. Pick, it would it would essentially um, it would rattle China at the same time you have the Ukraine war going on in a similar yeah. dynamic it gets really complicated so yeah yeah I don't really think they're thinking anything from the conversations that I've had I don't think there's <laughs> think right, yeah. hardly any person or department that's thinking seriously about any of this and I think they're trying to push this away as far as possible but this mm -hmm. might be somewhat of a na naive question but I'm just curious when you're talking about the WA dynamics one of the things that we've seen with the overall resistance movement is just the incredible power and resilience and uh, I would say inclusivity of Generation Z. You know, they have mm -hmm. done things in 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 Myanmar right now that we've never seen in their history in terms of the kind of vision that they're articulating and, and the kind of country they want to live in. And we're seeing, uh, I, I know you can't make um, I don't want to be naive in thinking that how people are articulating things now with the common enemy is going to be a utopia of how they're actually going to make it. But even that being said, there are certain kinds of solidarity being voiced by younger members of ethnic backgrounds as well as Bamar in terms of wanting to let go of certain past dynamics and support a federal democracy that is safe and inclusive of everyone, uh, even if that doesn't translate into actually creating an ideal federal democracy, just the mere fact that it's being talked about as something that many people I've spoken to that have lived through this or studied this for their lives have never have never seen or recalled anything like this before of this kind of um, this collective um, solidarity and uh, 
and vision for um, for how they see themselves occupying this country together. Certainly, even if you go back to 88 or even 07, you didn't see anything near like this. And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering when we look at the divisions in the WA, is there anything like that there with the Gen Z? Are there any, is there any degree of Gen Z that's not so much looking at the, uh, the geopolitical situation, but in, in a youthful exuberance of possibility is looking at visions of a federal democracy? Or am I just naive in my head in the clouds with that? Well, just to address your your the overall sentiment of what you just said, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely, this is it. I mean, this is the fundamental moment. It, it is it is absolutely ground shaking that the lowlands, just to put it in really simple terms, mm-hmm. the lowlanders and the highlanders mm-hmm. have never been more united. Yeah. Um, that's going to be the key to this thing. They know it. <laughs> Everybody who pays attention to Myanmar knows it, mm-hmm. and it opens up all of these astounding possibilities. Mm-hmm. We're already seeing it take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the WA, um, there aren't that many WA people who speak Burmese. It is taught in schools, but mm-hmm. the primary working language um, at home, it's it's the WA language. And then um, within the United WA State Army, um, which is essentially the, the, what is the state in WA State, um, mm-hmm. it's Chinese. And everybody speaks Chinese. Chinese is taught in schools. Um, so even when Wa people go on social media to express themselves, uh, they often turn on uh, Douyin, which is their version of TikTok. Um, however, um, a big part of Wa state is on the Thai border. And from there, you can actually pick up the Thai 4G signal, like bleeding over the mountains. Mm-hmm. And that gives them access to Facebook. As you know, in, in on the China uh, telecommunications grid, Facebook, Twitter, hard to access, right? You have to have mm-hmm. a VPN. Because there's so many um, WA troops spread along the Thai-Myanmar border, because um, in the 90s, they, they conquered Khun Sa and took his territory, becoming the new kings, um, you see people on Facebook. And I have, I follow a lot of WA, like, Facebook accounts and what you will mm-hmm. see on there a lot is um, just memes trashing uh, men online, comparing him to a dog, uh, rooting for the 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 young revolutionaries in the lowlands. Um, I mean, how do you not, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, yes, those sentiments are there, and there is some interest in 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 Burmese politics. It's hard to extrapolate what the average Wa thinks about the situation um, because there is still a lot of poverty in Wa State and not everybody even has a smartphone. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't rule it out. There is a changing of the guard happening in Wa State now. Um, the, in the next 10 years, um, there will be new leadership because the older leadership will retire or pass away. The, the new guys are in their 40s and early 50s. They speak Burmese, I'm told. Um, that's big because the mm-hmm. current 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 leaders do not speak much Burmese at all. They speak Burmese. Um, they they may have opinions that differ from the old guard. They may not view Burma as oh, that's just you know that's that the Burmese are all lowlanders and they think we're awful and we don't have to pay attention to them. They may have different ideas, but this is all very fresh and new and we'll have to see 
what type of public profile they have and whether they express any sympathy, solidarity, et cetera, with the, with the pro-democracy revolution. Mm, right. And I want to go back to what you were saying with how they just see this as a battle of lowlanders and just open up the context of that statement. I, I mean, this is a statement that's true, not just in Wa State and not just at this moment, but has been one that can be the ethnic attitude towards Bamar historically going back decades. I don't know if you've read um, Martin Smith's book, The uh, Burma Insurgency and the Politics of Ethnicity, just an incredible book, landmark book that came out um, some years ago that broke down the history of all these different ethnic struggles since independence. But he's breaking down, describing year by year, region by region, ethnic group by ethnic group. And uh, the changes in the in the central government, and um, how volatile and and in, how much infighting there was, and then at one point he just says that like, look, whether whether you're talking about a rise of a communist party, about uh, a military dictatorship, uh, people who are Democrats and want to see democracy flourish. Uh, those that have come out of the independence movement and are nationalists, um, whatever the characterization of these different groups, these the, the various ethnic regions just see them as all Bamar who are more or less spouting the same thing. And that just it blew me away because these groups among themselves are so different. I mean, communists, pro-democracy people and military regime, you couldn't come up with ideologies and worldviews that are more different than this. And yet it also makes sense looking at it from the ethnic point of view that however you're breaking down these largely Bamar-led organizations in whatever form they're taking, whether they're the the, the Burmese Socialist Party or the NLD or, or anything in between, that these are all just different variations of a Bamar-led group that are more or less espousing the same thing from their eyes. And I think that's such an important historical lens to understand when you look at what the NUG is trying to do and how the NUG is made up of, what, what who it's made up of and how decisions are made. And I think that there, you know, it's on one hand, I think it's true to say that the NUG is more aware and inclusive of this than we've seen previously, but I don't know if it really goes far enough. I think that I don't know if it really understands the extent to which the NUG is not going to be seen through ethnic eyes. And I'm not just looking at the at the WA, but the the different ethnic minorities that are out there and how they've they've suffered and been oppressed over the years. Uh, even if this incarnation of a of of a, a democracy faction with the NUG, even if it's more advanced and inclusive than we've ever seen, I I wonder if it goes far enough in terms of recognizing and responding to those concerns that it's just yet another Bamar-led organization. And this goes into what you're saying, where you look at the lowland people and you're you're looking lowland meaning NUG, the PDF uh, forces that are 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 functioning on the ground. Um, and um, fighting against the military regime that initiated the coup. In our eyes, these couldn't be; these two factions couldn't be more different in terms of the kind of Myanmar they want to build and what they're espousing. But I think it's really important to take that look from ethnic eyes that this is just more of the same. Yeah, well, that's why it's it's that that's that's the real revolution that's already happening. The beginning of this feeling of unity between the lowlands and 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 the highlands and if that if it doesn't work then the country just then the the revolution won't succeed uh-huh. I, i've even gone into trying to make contact with certain armed groups in shan state uh, to go visit their territory uh and been talking to them uh online to set it up you know with somebody within the group that speaks english and then they see my last name win which is actually a somewhat common burmese last name right right like, whoa 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 you're not 
I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just some dude. I'm not. I'm not Burmese. I'm like, okay, which is right. which is which is tragic. Of course, they should welcome a Burmese person ideally, but yeah. way before they would welcome me, a total a total foreigner, right? But there is that this distrust and and animosity there. Uh, it it has to be figured out, or or the revolution won't succeed. And I, look, I would go all the way back to the the origins of the the current borders of Burma of Myanmar. Mm-hmm. They're drawn by the British, all right? This is a colonizing force that um that had already around the world created borders in countries that are continuing to cause strife to this day. I mean, look mm-hmm. look look at a country like Iraq. Look at how they've drawn borders in um sub-Saharan Africa and split ethnic groups across borders. It's a natural recipe for conflict. Trying to have a uh, a nation state out of the bo- the current borders of, of Myanmar is going to be really, really hard. You're yeah. lumping in groups that, again, for eons previous to this, didn't necessarily see themselves as the same. I mean, right. you can imagine an alternate version of history in the multiverse where Shan State is a part of Thailand, right? Sure. Um, Shan, Thai people... Uh, their their languages are extremely close. Um, this just happens to be the way it is. So it is a challenge. And the ultimate <laughs> the ultimate taboo really is in this day and age is showing empathy towards the Myanmar military perspective, right? Even even mm-hmm. I, even I struggle with that because mm-hmm. the military has done so many awful things to people I love. But um, you can at least understand how this. Uh, mentality arose this really toxic racist mentality but okay we're we're the majority ethnic group in the country we're down in the lowlands how do we force everybody all these different groups in the hills and the mountains to do what we say i mean that has been the primal Mm -hmm. mission of myanmar's military um since the beginning, I mean, really carrying mm-hmm. on the the mission of the British colonial government, it's mm-hmm. a really, really hard problem to solve. Uh, perhaps this Gen Z generation can do it. I mean, I, I think I think that it's actually possible. That and that mm-hmm. that is that is really, really, really revolutionary. I'm I hope that they succeed. Mm, right. Yeah. That's what we're all waiting and watching. That's quite a task in front of them. Um, I'm also curious, since the coup in Myanmar, how has the political and social upheaval that's going on impacted the overall level of lawlessness in the region? Uh, in other words, in your analysis, do you anticipate any potential ramifications or spillover effects of, 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 of just general lack of law in these regions and specifically with narcotics that could start to overflow and, uh, and, and, and eventually impact neighboring states. This is something that other analysis appointed to that have frankly said, flatly said, I should say, when they're asked what it's going to take for other countries to start paying attention, they say, when we start to see these problems spilling over the border in whatever form it takes, when we start to see this lawlessness starting to impact other countries. And certainly we're seeing it with refugees, but there's, and there've even been reports of airstrikes where 
the Myanmar military has flown over like, you know, Indian land or something. I, I, I say might be true with Thailand. I can't quite remember. Yeah. But um, in terms of just the general lack of lawlessness and your background in reporting on illicit activities there, do you see a potential of a spillover effect in any area? I might take a different view than um, other people you've had on because uh, th- these areas have already been pretty lawless. By lawless, right. I mean not under the control of the central state, which in mm-hmm. some cases is a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. These areas have always been a, a patchwork that doesn't really fall under central government control. So um, that ship is, <laughs> has already sailed. Sure. Uh, um, there could be some degree of increase whenever you have a war, you have an incentive to frankly produce narcotics to fund that war. So there could be an uptick there. The UN without, I don't think they've connected it to um, the, the, the revolution yet or the, or either side of the, the, the struggle yet, but they've said that the, volume of methamphetamine has um, gone up as far as how much is being produced. So I think that it may exacerbate the current situation, but it's not a total game changer. Frankly, what I'm, I'm looking at more is um, what the Thai government ends up looking like in the next couple of months. Um, this is actually going to have a huge bearing, I predict, on the revolution because at present, um, we've had a military-run uh, government, military-aligned government in Thailand that mm-hmm. is very friendly with uh, Myanmar's military government. They have certain mm-hmm. things in common. Um, if the Thai government goes to um, <laughs> to the parties that were elected in the most recent Thai election that could be quite, quite favorable to the revolution because the would-be prime, next prime minister, um, Pita, has expressed uh, sympathy towards the mm-hmm. revolution and he's said some negative things about Myanmar's military. Stuff has to flow into Myanmar that can help them win. And I'm mm-hmm. talking about um, weapons. I'm talking about medicine, things like that. Uh, you know, You have to have a non-hostile border. Also, as people are fleeing violence or you have people flowing into Thailand to either look for, for work or perhaps as a rear base to benefit the revolution, it's not great when the government's uh, police force in Thailand is proactively going out there and rounding them up because yeah. it pleases their neighbors and, and earns them brownie points with Myanmar's military. That could actually be a big game changer, too. Ultimately, my view of how the world works is I see the world as an extremely chaotic place that is impervious to good predictions. Who knows what could happen? I mean, it could be anything from another pandemic. It could be a natural disaster. It could be an assassination. It could be, you know, some key person falling dead from a heart attack. Who knows? Mm -hmm. It could be something happening over in China or the U.S. Who knows? What the revolutionaries have done now is they've set up a structure so that if there's this concussive shock to um, to the Myanmar military, they have something in place to replace it. That's mm-hmm. I th- what I think is really, really important. That's what they've built now. Whether that would then hold, we, we don't know. But um, I, you know, I think the next six months to a year will be very interesting with respect to Thailand 
and how that affects the revolution. Mm. Now, regarding the nar- narcotic trade that's going on, do you see any evidence that the profits of the narcotics are going to either via the military itself or whatever form the Pithusit is taking on that that the profit from the narcotics are going to fund the military's oppression and attacks and assaults in trying to beat back the resistance? Only that all those profits, you know, those kickbacks that go um, to the regional commanders, um, some of it goes into their pockets and I think mm-hmm. some of it just goes into slush funds. So yeah, it, it, of course, um, it, it benefits their side. Um, how much they rely on those bribes or I would, they're really more like toll payments mm. um, would be a better way to look at it. How much they rely on that to get by day to day. I'm not exactly sure. I just know that um, the economy in Myanmar as run by the state has absolutely been kicked in the head. <laughs> Myanmar's mm-hmm. military needs all the money that it can get now too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not in very good shape. Uh, they have, um, of course, natural resources, uh, natural gas and jade and all that stuff. But they need all the money that they can get to to fend off the revolution. And so, yeah, every every little every little bit helps um, those regional commanders. Let's say if you know a genie floats down and just poof and all the narcotics disappear and there is no drug trade in Myanmar, those guys are going to take a serious hurting. I would be fascinated mm-hmm. to know to the degree to which they rely on that. Mm, Right. Uh, Historically, the relations between U.S. and Myanmar, even during their darkest period when they weren't really talking about anything, there was a cooperation in terms of the drug trade. This coincided with the war on drugs that was launched in the U.S. And it it also was uh, it was a time, as as you referenced earlier in the interview, that the the, the narcotics that were coming from Myanmar were actually impacting American lives, which is not the case now. So this might, I might answer the question itself before I ask it with this piece of knowledge. But what I'm curious about is, given that there is a history of the U.S. refusing to engage with Myanmar of anything, anything at all during some of the darkest days, they were still engaging with them with drug eradication. That was still something that they saw as an American priority, even looking past the terrible human rights violations that the regime was uh, was implementing at the time. Is there, um, um, have you have you heard of, or would you be surprised if there was any kind of discussion between American and Burmese military authorities on drugs particularly, or do you think that's that's given the nature of what narcotics are being produced and where they're going, which markets they're going to, that that would not necessarily be an issue today like it was in previous decades? Hmm. Well, I can answer your question pretty directly. Um, I don't think that post-coup, the DEA has a presence in Myanmar anymore, according to what I'm told. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's public knowledge or not, but uh, it is currently anathema for the DEA to, as the DEA or U.S. federal agents, to have contact with Myanmar's military regime. Um, it's, I just don't think it's happening at all. That is a break from before, I must say. If, uh, you know, the darkest days began in 1988 after the, the massacre, uh, and uh, when the regime went and just you know, slaughtered monks and student protesters and you know, 
people that listen to this podcast know what happened in 1988, right? Mm-hmm. So um, what that started actually was uh, an internal feud between the State Department and the DEA. The State Department position was no contact with Myanmar's regime is ideal. Um, these guys are thugs and goons and they're horrible. And, um, you know, there was even talk of pulling the U.S. embassy out of Yangon. What you had was the DEA saying, wait a minute, more heroin comes out of Myanmar than just about any other country in Asia. And it's flowing into our U.S. cities. The drug war is on. I mean, as the 90s rolled in, the drug war was still at a very high tempo. We have to, you know, hold our noses and deal with the Myanmar's regime, go out with their police and troops, and go arrest traffickers the same way that we do in Mexico. You know, we should be in there kicking down doors. Um, and this was a really, really bitter and nasty feud playing out inside the U.S. Embassy in Yangon. Um, I, we can understand the motivations of both sides. Now, of course, the State Department perspective is going to sound good to, to people who listen to this and think, well, yeah, you know, they are, the junta is horrible and, and that was the right position. Um, from the DEA position, it's like th- this makes absolutely no sense. We have relationships with all types of awful re- regimes. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to have a relationship with this awful regime if we want to get heroin off the streets, which, in their view, mattered more to everyday Americans than waving the democracy flag in Burma, a country that, let's face it, most Americans can't pick on a map, can't, can't locate on a map. So that really, really intense and nasty feud that also involved the CIA, um, which sided with the State Department, played out all through the 90s. And eventually the State Department, with the help of the CIA, uh, triumphed. And it really kind of ended around the time, by, by the by, like the war on terror years, the early two thousands. Um, the DEA had had sort of uh, let loose of that idea of intense cooperation with with Burma's regime. Mm, although it does have to be pointed out that some of the equipment they gave them for drug eradication was proven later to be used against ethnic people. So there definitely were some pretty terrible side effects of that. That's true. Um, the uh, Yeah, just to give a little more of the background, um, through the 70s and 80s, yes, the U.S. had an uh, anti-narcotics program with, um, with the uh, Nguyen regime. And yes, they did give them helicopters, they gave them planes, and those helicopters and planes were repurposed to... Um, to, to persecute ethnic minorities. By 1988, 89, 90, I don't know exactly when they cut them off, but I think it was the Reagan administration. They were like, mm-hmm. all right, no more U.S. anything going into Burma for the time being. Um, and I think it was actually pretty pretty difficult for, for the Burmese regime because they're, they had these U.S. helicopters and they couldn't get replacement parts for them. Yeah, so right. when the DEA guys would partner with them to go out and, and survey Sean State, they're in these helicopters, and they're like, "Oh God, you know, I hope, <laughs> I hope <laughs> like the rotor doesn't fall off here because because they had no way to service those helicopters with parts." Hmm. Right. So, 
In closing, looking ahead to where we're at now, two and a half years into this resistance, and uh, as you said just a moment ago, the uncertainty of the future, so many things can hinge on some small thing happening one direction or the other, which then affects the whole playing field. So this is kind of an impossible question to answer, not knowing the, uh, the, the, the things that could happen that surprise us that really shift. But just in general, what are you looking at? Like what trends are you looking at? What are you curious about? What are you paying attention to as someone who has lived and reported on this region and especially illicit activity in the region? What is it that you're most closely paying attention to now? Uh, in two words, Wa State. I think mm-hmm. I think Wa State is absolutely the most fascinating variable in this um, in this conflict. Um, I've been trying to cover Wa State um, as treating it like a nation, and I mm-hmm. just I, again I want to distinguish nation from country. They're not trying to be an independent country, but they are they are a nation. They're an ethnic group that controls its borders and and has. Um, a sense of ethnic belonging in their homeland um, and has a highly, highly functioning government um, and is, of course, like any government, capable of doing things that, that really bring a lot of harm. Uh, they're also capable of defending their homeland from total domination by Myanmar's central state, which is something that I think people in every part of the country can relate to. So, um I'm interested in my reporting dropping the um, dropping the perspective on Wa State as you know the sinister drug cartel in the hills and their former mm-hmm. headhunters and all that stuff. Uh, I'm interested in in moving past that and covering covering Wa State as a de facto de facto nation. Um, the next book I'm not quite ready to promote it yet, but it will be out in January 2024. Um, looks at uh, DEA operations and C- CIA operations in Myanmar, and a lot of it focuses on Wa State and some untold stories about um, uh, yeah, <laughs> where to begin, uh, mm-hmm. how the CIA and uh, DEA have interacted with the Wa over over the past decades. Um, and so that book will be out in early January. I'll start promoting it uh, in a future date. Great. Yeah. Well, we look forward to having you on to discuss that book at length when it comes out. And in closing, any last thing you want to say or comment on that this discussion hasn't touched upon? No, I think we've pretty much covered it. I would just encourage uh, everybody looking at Myanmar's drug trade to try to see it as uh, as a trade, as a commodity. Try and look at it for what it is, um, a way to achieve power, a way to manipulate borders, um, a critical ingredient in how uh, Myanmar will, Myanmar's future will unfold. Um, the farther we get away from the draconian drug war ideology, where you're just really viewing it as a good versus evil struggle, um, the more clear-headed you will be. And this isn't Star Wars, okay? It's just not, it's not, you know... Uh, Luke versus Darth Vader. It, think of it as a commodity. Just like oil has shaped the fate of Saudi Arabia, you should look at the mountains of Myanmar as a place where narcotics affect it. And in the future, if there is a, a, a new government, a, pro, a democratic government controlling Myanmar, it will then have a say in whether it wants to see Myanmar continue to be a place that produces vast, vast quantities of narcotics 
for the entire region. Um, and if that future government wants to wipe out the narcotics trade, it will have a very, very big task ahead of it. So that's those those are my thoughts. I just hope that people can can see this for what it is and not see it in this uh, as, a, as a morality play. know that in addition to running these podcast episodes, we also run a nonprofit, Better Burma, which carries out humanitarian projects across Myanmar. While we regularly post about current needs and proposals from groups on the ground, we also handle emergency requests, often in matters that are quite literally life or death. When those urgent requests come in, we have no time to conduct targeted fundraisers, as these funds are often needed within hours. So please consider helping us to maintain this emergency fund. We want to stress that literally any amount you can give allows us to respond more flexibly and effectively when disaster strikes. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects, as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's betterburma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.
Hoba, yara nanda, 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 yara nanda